So tonight is class four of this incredible journey of positivity bias. And I called this one, Oi or Joy, The Ultimate Cure. Now, the point and one of the reasons why I, I actually uh, gave this course is because it was coinciding with the 26th anniversary of the Rebbe's passing, which is going to take place this coming Wednesday night. And so while we have discussed this idea of positivity bias, we've told so many incredible stories about the Rebbe. Tonight, I think there's only one way that we can culminate this entire discussion. And that is trying to understand why the Rebbe insisted on joy, especially in desperate circumstances. Why did the Rebbe insist on joy? Why maybe we should insist on people being real? If, you know, a lot of therapists will say, whatever you're feeling, allow that feeling to manifest, which has its value. In a, in a Freudian look, it has its value. But the Rebbe did not say that. The Rebbe insisted that we be joyous in all circumstances. The Rebbe spoke about it. We said this last week. That think good and will be good. Another quote, if you've ever been to Chabad and Niji, you'll see we have a picture of the Rebbe, a painting by Adi Goslin hanging on the wall. And on the bottom of the painting, Adi asked me, what quote of the Rebbe should I write on the bottom of the painting? And I said, I want you to write my favorite quote of the Rebbe. And that is, joy breaks all boundaries. And that was the Rebbe's philosophy. Joy breaks all boundaries. Joy is so powerful. And we've been through this. We've discussed this. So my question, finishing off this course, is why? Now, in order to answer the question, I think we need to start off with a larger question. We're going to get back to this question, but I want to start off tonight with a larger question. And that is, what is the role of joy in Judaism? Where does, where does joy come in in Judaism? I mean, if you... If you ever look at these pictures of uh, Roman Vizhniak from the the shtetl, you know, he went in the late 1800s and early 1900s, he went through all the shtetls of of Poland, and he took pictures of the Jews, of the religious Jews, of the Hasidim, and you often see these pictures of these long, fellowed, saddened faces. Now, I'm not going into Roman Vizhniak and what his goal was and why he did that. And, and there was even a, a film that came out in, in the late 80s called A Life Apart. And uh, it was about, it was one of the first films in the genre about the Hasidic community. And one of the goals I believe the filmmaker was trying to show was this kind of long-faced, saddened community. And it's funny that that is kind of this image that people have. If you ask people in Uchimal, you know, what is your initial thought of the Hasidim? 
they're going to, I'm just guessing, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I'm going to guess their initial thought is not going to be, oh, they are like the happy-go-lucky, joyous types. Because when they walk down the street, not always are they looking that way. The funny thing is that Hasidim were actually known for cultivating joy. Actually, before they were called Hasidim, they were referred to as the Freilacher. That's what they were called before they were called Hasidim. They were called the Freilacher, which means the happy ones. That's what they called these people. These, these, these Jews, this Jewish community that kind of popped up in the early 18th century, all over Poland and, and, uh, and white Russia, and uh, you know, originally uh, from the Baal Shem Tov, they were not called Hasidim. There was a name that was given to them later. In the beginning, it was they were called happy because these were people who were simple people that were extremely happy and they knew how to be joyous. Even, I mean, these were people who you would see a Hasid. You want to know what a picture of a Hasid was? A Hasid in early 18th century, he would be shining the spokes of his wagon. He was a wagon driver, a simple wagon driver. And he would be singing a song, a nigun, and, and smiling with, with joy. That was what the symbol of being this kind of person was. Now, prior to the 18th century, the motivational norm was largely reward and punishment, was largely social admiration and pressure, and even possibly excommunication. So the, the system within the Jewish community worked by and large and was considered appropriate in the general historical and cultural climate of the times. Religion was serious. Religion wasn't happy-go-lucky. It wasn't a monkey business. It was serious. Joy was not a... a, a, a a spiritual priority for much of medieval Judaism. And the early Hasidic emphasis on this unbounded exuberance was an actual shock to the system. So in 1801, when the founder of the Chabad movement, Rabbi Shner Zalman of Liadi, was incarcerated due to this unfortunate libelous information that was supplied to the Tsarist government by the opponents of the Hasidic movements. And one of their primary complaints that they included in the documents to the Tsarist government presented that the Hasidim were a new religion. How do, how do they say that? Because they were... They evidenced it by saying that in the books of the founders of the Hasidic movement, it said that a person always had to be happy, not only while praying, but at all times. And these people said, this idea goes against the Jewish religion. They literally, they, they, were, they were trumped up, sorry to use that pun, um, but they were trumped up charges against the, the Alter Rebbe against Rabbi Shner Zalman. And there were many charges. One of them is that he was giving money to the Ottoman Empire, to the Turks, 
because he was sending money to the Jews of Israel at the time, the poor, the poor people in Israel. And Israel was under the Turkish rule and Russia was in a war with the Turks. So they said that he was giving money to the enemy when he was sending money to Israel. Well, it wasn't called Israel, obviously. But the, one of the other charges was that they said that it's a new religion because they said in their documents that you should always be happy. So just to give you an idea of how historically this is not something that maybe would have sat well with a Jew 250 years ago. Now, there's a concept which is called Simcha Shel Mitzvah, the joy of a mitzvah. This idea of the joy of a mitzvah was always part and parcel of the Jewish heritage. Actually, Moshe, Moses says it clearly in the Torah. Because you did not serve your God with happiness and with gladness of heart, therefore you shall serve your enemies. And then centuries later, King David says, serve God with joy. There's a famed Kabbalist named Rabbi Yitzchak Luria. He's known as the Arizal. He once said that all that he had achieved spiritually was a reward for his observance of the commandments of the mitzvot with limitless joy. That was his secret. But what's fascinating is that the joy that these people were referring to was traditionally understood as being limited to the joy associated with the study of Torah, with the joy associated with the fulfillment of a mitzvah. But when it came to any other aspect of life that had nothing to do with Torah, that had nothing to do with a mitzvah, nobody would say the word joy associated with that. Joy, maybe at that time, would be considered outside of Torah, outside of mitzvot, they would consider joy indulgent. They would maybe even consider it hedonistic to a certain extent. Maybe there was uh, some Greek influence there that was still a remnant of that. So into this landscape, the Baal Shem Tov comes. Now, just to give you a little bit of a picture of how the Hasidic movement was created. The Hasidic movement was created in the late, uh, the late 17th century. And the Baal Shem Tov has his own fascinating story, which I'm not going to get into tonight. But these were people who were survivors of the Chimoniki pogroms. The, the story is that the, the Russian, uh, the, the Poles went after the Russians. And I guess, for lack of better words, you don't go after the Russians. So the Russians came back after the Poles. And, and, and they, they, they ret- as the Poles were retreating from the Russians, the, and they were like, they were hacking at them. I'm trying to make this not so gory. They went, the Poles in their retreat, they went through town and townlet of Jewish life and, and destroyed Jewish life in, in Poland. This is 250 years before the Holocaust. 
There was nobody. We don't know numbers because they didn't keep numbers then. But it was definitely in the millions. There was nobody in the Jewish community that didn't have a family member or a friend that was lost during that time, during those pogroms. I mean, this, was, this was not unique. There, was many, there were many pogroms. If you go through Jewish history, unfortunately, I don't have an opportunity tonight to give you a crash course in Jewish history, but this was one of the pogroms that really hit the Jewish community. Now, what was fascinating during that time is that there were two types of Jews. There was the learned Jew and there was the unlearned Jew. The unlearned Jew just meant that they were a simple person, probably a worker, um, a blacksmith, a wagon driver, a water carrier, somebody who worked the field of some sort. And this kind of Jew, they knew the entire Psalms by heart. And they would, they would just recite the whole Psalms every single day by heart as they were working. That was considered a simple Jew, but they were not learned. And so when they went and ask the rabbis questions. Nobody had questions for them. So these unlearned, simple, faithful Jews who were mourning, who were in a tremendous amount of grief, didn't know what to do with themselves. And at the time, the Baal Shem Tov, this Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, by the way, Baal Shem is like a healer. There were many Baal Shems uh, during that time. There's many stories of many different Baal Shems. Baal Shem meant like, a, it was like a doctor almost. Uh, it was a spiritual healer. And these, they were known as these spiritual healers and people would go to them. So this young Israel Baal Shem, who was this healer, he started traveling the countryside. And he would just tell them stories to uplift them. But people liked him and they started following him. And they listened to him. and as the years went on, and he went from town to town to uplift the Jewish community there, people would follow him where he went, and he started building up a, a, a nice amount of people who were following him, and eventually he became the Baal Shem Tov and founded the Hasidic movement. That's the story of the Hasidic movement in a nutshell. Now, one of the first statements that he said when he enters this landscape is he says to these simple people, now again, they're simple people, they're so faithful, but not learned. He says to them, a Jew must strive to be joyful at all times. At all times, meaning not just when you're doing your mitzvah. They used to think that you only should be joyous when you're studying Torah or you're doing a mitzvah. And he says all times. And to support this seemingly radical claim, he actually draws his teaching from the ethics of our fathers, from the Pirkei Avot, and he, which says there, all your actions should be for the sake of heaven. And based on this, the Baal Shem Tov taught that whatever a person does, eating, sleeping, business, even leisure, should be part of their divine service. Meaning what? They should all be done with the proper intentions. So if a person is serving God in all their actions, then King David's injunction to serve God with joy applies in all times, in all situations. You see what he did? He said that Judaism is not separate from you. 
your Jewish experience is not like maybe other religions, which talk about their religious experiences being outside of the home. The most important place for your Jewish experiences are inside the home, which is one of the reasons why I am truly enjoying this process of these Zoom meetings, because I find that through these Zoom meetings, we are uplifting our homes. Usually, I would be giving these classes in the shul for you to be leaving your homes to come and experience this. But now we're able to vibe up all of our homes with this. And this was one of the Baal cardinal ideas is that Judaism is not outside of the home. The, more, the most important place is in, is in the home. In everything that you do, there is an element of godliness in that. This was a complete paradigm shift. The, since the Baal Shem Tov introduced this, it's become part and parcel of Hasidic thought. It's become part and parcel of Hasidic practice, Hasidic culture. I would even say that it's really made its way into the entire Jewish community at large. But before the Baal Shem Tov, this was unheard of. That joy is essential, not just in religious matters, but in all areas of life, this is incredible. I mean, it seems so simple, right? Everyone's thinking, well, I mean, I, I could have thought of that. <laughs> I mean, that's what I want. We all want that. That's what we're doing here right now. Yes, it's simple. Yes, we all could have thought about it. But no one did. No one spoke about it. And now it's very much part of our desire and our wish. But beyond the role of joy in our personal life and in the service of God, the Baal Shem Tov taught that joy has a profound effect on high, that the pure, unadulterated joy is the most, is the most precious spiritual currency in the higher realms. And the most potent spiritual formula to upend negative heavenly decrees, which means if there is a negative heavenly decree that is against an individual, there's one way to change it. Well, there's a couple of ways to change it, but the primary modality and method to change it would be with joy. I'll tell you a story. Rabbi Dove Ber who now, just to give you the, the history, the Baal Shem Tov has a successor named Rabbi Dovber, who is the Maggid of Mezrich. His student is Rabbi Shner Zaman of Liadi, who is the founder of the Chabad Hasidic movement. There are other branches and other Hasidic movements, but I'm, I'm going into this particular line. And then Rabbi Shner Zaman has a son named Dovber, and they, he's known as the Mitzler Rebbe. So this story happens to this, the son of Rabbi Shner Zaman of Liadi, the Mitzler Rebbe, Rabbi Dovber. He had a group of Hasidim who formed what they called the Kapelia. It was like an orchestra. And another group that was trained to perform tricks on horseback. So on special uh, joyous occasions, he would ask the orchestra and the circus performers or the horseback performers to perform. Now, Rabbi Dovber's son, Rabbi Nachum, happened to be one of the horsemen. And one day, 
for no apparent reason, the Rebbe instructed both of these groups to perform. And it was extremely unusual. There was no day of celebration. There was no cause for celebration. There was no special day on the calendar. But if the Rebbe says, so the Hasidim do, so the Hasidim performs, and the Rebbe would stand on the balcony and watch. Suddenly, the Rebbe's son, Rebbe Nachum, falls off the horse. They come over to the balcony and they say to Rebbe Dov Ber, your son is uh, in grave danger. And they're whispering in his ear that his son is in grave danger, just fell off a horse while performing a trick. And he goes and motions with his hands. He says, continue the festivities. After a while, Rebbe Bear asks them to stop. And he steps into his private office. A doctor is summoned. And his son, Rebbe Nachum's situation proved to be far less severe than they thought at first. He had a broken leg, but that was it. The Rebbe was asked why he told the horsemen and the choir to continue with the performance even though his son had just gotten injured. It was okay to stop it. Your son was just injured. Why did you tell them to continue? And this is what the Rebbe said. Why don't you ask me an even better question? See, Jews, I always answer with a question. Why did I ask the horsemen in the choir to perform on a simple weekday in the first place? There was no special celebration. So the Rebbe explained, today I knew in the heavens was supposed to be a harsh day for my son. I saw a grave accusation against him in the heavenly courts. The prosecution was so very powerful, I could see only one way out. Joy sweetens divine severity. So I called the choir to sing. And I asked the riders to gladden everyone with their antics. And the joy created, tempered the strict decree against my son. But a small portion of the decree remains. And that's why he fell off his horse and hurt his leg. However, he continued the joy. And that even lessened the residual decree, he says. And God willing, he's, my son Nachum is going to recover in the very near future. It's a, I know it's a strange story. But I think what's novel about the story, and something that's novel of this nature in many Hasidic stories, it's, it's important to note that these stories are much more than stories. They're each seen to be a building block in the Hasidic theological worldview. There's a great emphasis on sincerity, on humility, on uh, brokenheartedness as the means of getting through to heaven and penetrating the veil of divine judgments and blockage, vulnerability, brokenness. These are considered sacred entry points into the inner pathways leading us to the divine. This is fundamental to Hasidic thought. One of the pivotal prayers of the Yom Kippur prayer 
I would say, I mean, most chazanim, if you're in a synagogue and there's a cantor there, my gosh, they go on and on. It is the prayer of Natana Tokef. Natana Tokef is, is actually the newest prayer in the Machsur. It's only from uh, the Middle Ages. It's from the early, uh, the early 14th century. The, the author of this prayer is Rabbi Moses Amon. And there's a long story behind the prayer that I don't, I don't want to get into. But at the end of the prayer, it says something fascinating. And usually the cantor will scream it out in the synagogue. In our synagogue, we do it in Hebrew and in English. That teshuvah, tefillah, utzedakah, ma'avirin et ra'ah That prayer, repentance, and charity avert the severity of the decree. And I've always wondered what a statement. What a statement. Why doesn't it say prayer, repentance, and charity should destroy the decree? I don't want to avert severities of decree. And I think about this. I think about this when I forgot to move my car because I was in quarantine and I got a ticket. And I went outside and I said, Teshuvah, Tefillah, Tzedakah, Ma'avirinet, Ra'akzeira, this averted the severity of a decree. It was supposed to be much worse and I got a parking ticket. I'm happy. Thank you, God. And I think that this is an amazing way of living. This is a great philosophy through which we can live. And it's such a powerful prayer that we say that there are things that happen in our lives, but through our merits, we avert the severity of a decree, which means it was supposed to be something harsh, but it turned into a parking ticket. I can handle that. I know, look, it was sad. I, you know, you have to pay a couple dollars and it keeps on going up every time I look at it. It's amazing. Like, I looked at it once and it was one and then I, I turned it over again. It was a different number. It's amazing how fast it goes up. But if instead of getting frustrated and upset, we can simply just look at these experiences as averting the severity of a decree. And then there's a joy. And that's the nature of this story. We don't know. We're not Rav Dovber. We're not great Rebbes to know what's going on in the heavens. We don't know what, what's in store. We don't know this reward and punishment and, and what the story with us is. But what we know is that we try to do the best we can. We try to be the best people we can. And so when something happens to us that we think is not good, look, sometimes it's, it's extremely not good, and that's a different story. But I'm talking about something that just, one of those things that just gets our, under our nails, just gets under our skin. You know what I'm talking about. Like a parking ticket. I think a parking ticket is a good example. It just like you can have such a bad day after that. What did I do? I just, you know, I just, I over, I, I, you know, especially now with the quarantine, it's so easy if you're parking on the street all the time. But if you look at it as averting the severity of a decree, thank you, God. Thank you. It's just a parking ticket. I can handle that. What's money anyway? We'll be back after a quick break.
Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell you another story of the Balshemtov. One year, the Balshemtov says to Rabbi Zev Kitsis, "It's one of he's one of his senior disciples. He says, you're going to blow the shofar for us this year on Rosh Hashanah in the shul, and I want you to study all of the uh, kavanot, all of the proper thoughts that you're supposed to have when you blow the shofar." You should meditate them while you're blowing the shofar. You should meditate on those thoughts and you should know them very well. And he was so worried, this Reb Zev. He applied himself joy and trepidation. He was so happy over the privilege that the Vashemta gave him to blow the shofar in his synagogue. But he also felt this immense responsibility. He studied the Kabbalistic writings. He discuss the multifaceted significance of the shofar and what its sounds achieve, the various levels of reality and the various uh, chambers of the soul. He also prepared a sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper, he noted many points of each of the meditations, each of the kavanot that he could refer to as he blew the shofar. So he'd be looking at the, at the, the notes of the blowing of the shofar and the notes of the proper thoughts so that he could have he had this whole plan. Finally, the great moment arrives. It's the morning of Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Zev stands at the bima in the center of the synagogue. He can see the Baal Shem Tov in the distance, the great rabbi. He's surrounded by the sea of uh, talits, just draped bodies, white and black. And at his table, in the southeast corner of the room, the Balshemtiv was standing. His face is aflame. There's an odd silence. It fills the room in anticipation of the climax of the day, the shofar blowing, the piercing sounds of the shofar. Reb Zev reaches into his pocket and his heart froze. The paper disappeared. It disappeared. He knew that he put the paper in his pocket in the morning, and now it's gone. He doesn't know what to do. He's, he's searching his memory for what he had learned, but he's so distressed that he's completely incapacitated. His mind just went totally blank. He starts crying, tears rolling down his cheeks. 
he had disappointed the rabbi, the great Baal Shem Tev. He disappointed him, the master. He trusted him with the most sacred task and he disappointed him. And now he has to blow the chauffeur like a simple person without any thoughts, without any meditations. With a despairing heart, Zev blows the shofar and then goes back to his place. He's, he's saddened, disgusted, so upset with himself. After the prayers, the Bashemtov makes his way to Reb Zev's spot and he sees him there sobbing, sobbing covering his face with his talit, but under his talit, he's just sobbing. The Baal looks at him and says, good yomtif, Reb Zev. That was the most extraordinary chauffeur blowing I've ever heard. But Rebbe, I, 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 the stops him. He says, in the king's palace, there are many gates and doors leading to many halls and chambers. The palace keepers, the palace keepers have great rings holding many keys. And each of those rings have a key that opens a different door. But there's one key, a master key that opens all the doors. He says, each of the meditations, each of the kavanot, they unlock a different door. Each of them has access another chamber in the supernal worlds. But there's one key that unlocks all the doors. There's one key that opens for us the innermost chambers of the divine palace. And that master key, Reb Zev, is a broken heart. The Bashemta didn't stop there. He didn't stop because he had another teaching. He turns to Reb Zev and he says, If tears are the key to opening the heavenly gates, then it's joy that demolishes the gates. The Bashemta turns to him and says, the idea that joy is the most effective way to influence the upper worlds. The most effective way. Now, it seems counterintuitive because we think of heartfelt prayers as being filled with tears and desperation. The Reb Zev prayers. But on the surface, it makes sense that a prayer that we ask for our loved ones, our world that's desperately in need. But this story, and the story of the, the Mitzler Rebbe, Rabdov Bear that I told you before, they work on a different paradigm. They work in a different world. I'm gonna tell you one more story and I'm gonna fit it all together. Once during a, a private audience, there was a student that was sitting with the Rebbe and expressed 
negativity and, and pessimism about his future. The Rebbe stood up and took out a volume of the Zohar, the foremost book on Kabbalah from his shelf, and he placed it before the students. The book was opened up to the following passage. It said, Ta Chaz, which means come and observe. Our world is always ready to receive the spiritual flow that emanates from above. The upper world provides in accordance with the state below. If the state below is joyous, then correspondingly, abundance flows from above. However, the Zohar continues, if the state below is one of sadness, then correspondingly, the flow of blessings is constricted. Therefore, the Rebbe says, serve God with joy, because human joy and optimism draw a corresponding joy above. This needs explanation. Heaven and earth. This is a fundamental precept in Kabbalah and Hasidic teachings. Heaven and earth are in constant communication. A fact, according to this teaching in the Zohar and according to other teachings in the Zohar, what happens down here sets the tone for the heavenly responses to our circumstances, not the opposite way around. It's not what happens up there sets the tone for what's down here. It's what happens down here sets the tone for what's up there. In other words, we are able to intervene and impact reality in partnership with God. That is what prayer is supposed to be, by the way. Prayer is not absent-minded recitations. It's not focused on the words that we say and the way we say those words. It's focused on our hearts. It is supposed to be something that is deeply emotional, deeply emotional. Are we filled with grief? Are we overflowing with praise? Are we filled with gratitude? Are we crying or are we singing? Or are we just mindlessly muttering the words, absent-mindedly? The moods, the emotions that we cultivate during prayer and throughout our day, they become the carriers of our vision and our dreams to manifest in our lives. In fact, joy is seen by our sages as the most important inner state to activate when it comes to connecting our will to God's will. And that's why the Hasidic masters would always say, Simcha Paretz Geder, joy breaks through all boundaries and constrictions. This was the, re the reference to it. What does that mean is that you can have a limiting thought. You can have a limiting belief. You can have something that's limiting you. You can even have a physically something that's going on in the heavens that's limiting you. Joy will break through that. And now I think we have a, a great understanding of why the Rebbe wanted us to be joyous all the time. And not only in spite of a difficult situation, but maybe because of it. 
because of a difficult situation, maybe that's why we should be joyous. So I'm just gonna summarize before we go on to uh, a short video and then questions and answers. Number one, joy, even unrelated to any type of religious practice is not discouraged or forbidden or even tolerated and allowed. It's highly encouraged. It's considered sacred for its own sake as not just a means to an ends, but for literally for the ends alone. Joy is fundamental to Judaism. Number two, joy is not only holy, but it's highly effective and highly contagious. And it's the most powerful tool to break the barriers of harsh decrees and to avert the severity of harsh decrees. And number three, our mindset, whether expansive or narrow, determines whether the state and flow of divine energy will either be forthcoming or restricted. We decide what happens in the heavens, not the opposite way around. That whole idea that Rosh Hashanah, book of life and book of death, we have the power to change that just with our attitude, just with experiencing joy. And so because we're just a few days from the anniversary of the Rebbe's passing, I'm going to show you a small video that, uh, I don't know, I don't know, I, I hope there's nothing, uh, John Voigt, he's still okay, right? John Voigt, he's good, he's okay. Can we, can we quote him? Anyway, he, he was a big fan, of, he is a big fan of the Rebbe's and he made a, a beautiful little video. This is, a, this is a, a film that he made, a four minute film that he made about the Rebbe. And uh, so I wanted to show it to you tonight and then we'll go after that little film into our questions and answers. I'm just gonna share this. I hope this works. Try it again. Oh, there it is. I hope you can see it. is a kinder and gentler place because of a sainted man whose immense spirituality and holiness projected for everyone, for you and me, a life filled with happiness and the performance of good deeds. This special man I speak of is Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Each Sunday, the Rebbe would receive thousands of men, women, and children from all walks of life regardless of race, color, or creed, and among them were world leaders, children, scholars, simple folks, students, and laymen. To each of them, the Rebbe gave a dollar bill, making them his partner to give it to the charity of their choice. Why the dollar? The Rebbe explained his custom 
by quoting his father-in-law, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak of Lubavitch, who would often say, when two people meet, something good should result for a third. The Rebbe wished to elevate each of the thousands of encounters of the day to something more than just a meeting of two individuals. He wanted that each should involve the performance of a mitzvah, a good deed, particularly a mitzvah that also benefits another individual. The Rebbe, at the age of 92, would stand for as long as eight hours without interruption to receive his visitors. Yet in the few seconds that he or she was with the Rebbe, each person felt that the Rebbe was there only for them. It was as though he or she were the only visitor of the day. Once an elderly woman could not contain herself and burst out, Rebbe, how do you do it? How is it that you do not tire? The Rebbe smiled and replied, every soul is a diamond. Can one grow tired of counting diamonds? You can marvel at the unending list of educational, charitable, social, and religious programs inaugurated around the world. You can study the more than 200 volumes of his published works. The Rebbe strove to realize Maimonides' vision of a world free of death and destruction. Toward his goal, the Rebbe took a generation from the ashes of the Holocaust and inspired the rebuilding of Jewish life to the great crescendo it has reached today. In 1994, the world lost the Rebbe's physical presence, but the Rebbe's continued leadership inspires his disciples to establish and build communities across the globe, more now than ever before. The Rebbe devoted his life to our good deeds, and through our good deeds, the Rebbe is on. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode. <laughs> 